the pattern in the book of Judges is firmly established. The people of Israel called to be God's people in this land, called to drive out the enemies from before them, didn't. And instead, they exchanged the worship of Yahweh for the worship of local Canaanite deities, gods like Baal and Asherah, his wife. And we see repeatedly in the book of Judges the people of Israel doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord in this idolatry. And so God, at several places throughout Judges, he turns the people of Israel over to oppressors, foreign oppressors, or oppressors from within the land that they should have driven out in the first place. For a period of time, then, Israel suffers under the hand of their oppressors. They finally come to themselves. They realize that they have sinned. They cry out to God for deliverance. And God responds out of his covenant faithfulness, out of his hesed, his loving kindness. He raises up a deliverer. And through that deliverer, God rescues his people. And now, while that deliverer, that judge, lives, everything is good. The land has peace. The people of Israel seem to be faithful or as faithful as they could be. But then the judge dies. And when that judge dies, the cycle begins again. And so this morning, as we look at Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5, we begin by keeping in mind this simple phrase. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Judges chapter 4, verse 1. Here in Judges chapter 4, let me sort of briefly tell the story. Uh, we heard just a little bit of it this morning as Lee read. The people of Israel turned to foreign gods. They turned to the Baal. They turned to Asherah. They did what was evil in the eyes of God. And so Yahweh turned them over. Literally, it says he sold them into the hands of a man named Jabin, who's the king of Canaan. And for 20 years, they suffered under the leadership. They suffered under the oppression of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who, by the way, had a warlord, Sisera, with 900 chariots of iron. Think of it this way, perhaps it's helpful, maybe it's not. Jabin is sort of like Emperor Palpatine, and Sisera is sort of Darth Vader, the enforcer, the, the warlord. After 20 years of oppression, the people of Israel cry out to God, and God responds. How does God respond? First thing he does is he sends Deborah, and through Deborah he sends Barak, and then there's a woman named Jael. God sends Deborah, a prophetess, a judge, the wife of Lapidoth, who says to Barak, The Lord has called you, Barak, to raise up an army of 10,000 men, and the Lord will send you into battle, and the Lord will go before you, and the Lord will deliver into your hands Sisera and his 900 chariots. And Barak says, I'll go if you'll go. And Deborah says, I'll go. And exactly what God said through Deborah to Barak happened, would happen, did happen. They met in battle, and against all odds, Barak and his 10,000 Israelites, underarmed, are able to defeat the ancient world equivalent of tanks, 900 chariots. 
Sisera flees for his life because he sees that his army is routed. He goes to the wife of Hebar, the Kenite. He goes to the tent of Jael and says to her, save me, protect me. And rather than receiving hospitality at the hands of Jael, he receives a bowl of warm milk. He falls asleep. She rolls him up into a rug, and then she drives a tent peg through his temple sticking him into the ground like a butterfly pinned to a cushion. And on that day, we're told, as chapter 4 comes to an end, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. As we look at this passage, the the narrative of chapter 4 and then the theological explanation, the the song of praise that's found in chapter 5, as we look at this passage together... We ask ourselves three questions. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about Jesus? And what does this tell us about humanity? Well, when it comes to God, we ask ourselves this question, what does it tell us about God? It's simply this. God is the divine warrior who enters into creation and fights for his people in physical and spiritual realms. God is the divine warrior who fights for his people by entering into creation and fighting on physical and spiritual realms. How do we we know this from this particular passage? Well, the first thing I'd like for us to do is notice whose initiative this is. Right In the narrative of Judges chapter 4, we find that Yahweh is the true hero of the story, working through human heroes who respond to his call with obedience. And so the initiative is all God's. In chapter 4, verse 6, if you have your Bibles open, look at chapter 4, verse 6. Notice who it is that calls and commissions the raising of an army of Israel. Barak did not go out in his own strength with his own good name and convince 10,000 Israelites to go and fight for him. It wasn't Barak's initiative. Rather, in chapter 4, verse 6, we see the prophetess Deborah telling Barak that it is Yahweh who wants him to raise an army. And I think it's good for us to consider then, how is Yahweh working this out? He's providing for the army to respond with obedience. And who is it then that lays out the battle plan? Who's got the power to oversee all of this happening? Is it Barak's good idea that they meet alongside the Kishon River? No. It's actually God's plan, God's power. In chapter 4, verse 7, Deborah tells Barak that it is Yahweh who will draw out the army of Sisera, who will draw out his 900 chariots. And in fact, if you go to a... Uh, a flat place alongside of a river, you go to a plain, you're actually playing into the home field advantage for 900 chariots. But we'll come to that in a minute. And notice who then it is that will win the victory in chapter 4, verse 7. It is Yahweh who says through Deborah, I will give him into your hand. I will give Sisera into your hand. So this is God's initiative. This is God's power, his plan. This is God's victory. And the result of the battle, Lee read for us this morning in chapter 4, verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge 
of the sword in chapter 4, verse 23. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And so what we're seeing here is not Israel in its own strength, in its own power, delivering itself as if it could. We're seeing God, Yahweh, the triune divine warrior, fighting for his people Israel. And he does this in physical and spiritual realms. Physically, God controls, God uh, takes out Sisera and his chariots. We'll see how he does that here in, the few, in a few moments. But the way this narrative is understood is important for us. Because chapter 5, uh, Deborah and Barak sing what would at that time be a contemporary praise and worship song. Thank you. And in that song, in that song of praise, they give all the glory and all the credit to God. They celebrate Yahweh's coming in power. They praise Yahweh for marching to battle. In chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, we hear, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Yahweh entered in and used people and used creation to wage war. We read here in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, that the clouds dropped water, that it rained. We read here that the earth shook. And in chapter 5, verses 20 through 22, we read even more. In this song of praise, we read, From heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera, the torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping, galloping of his steeds. What we're seeing explained in this song of praise is that God used the rain and the river to defeat the chariots of Sisera. Whatever it may mean, the stars fought on Yahweh's behalf, and most certainly on account of the rain, the flooded Kishon River turned the battlefield that was once a home field advantage for the chariots of Sisera into a quagmire. The horses even were spooked and fled the battlefield. God entered in, he used human agents, and he used creation. And you may be asking yourself, why is Caleb belaboring this point? What's the big deal? God's the creator, he made it rain. God does make it rain. But there is an important point going on here. It's important because while this battle was fought in the physical realm, it is also a battle that was fought in the no less real spiritual realm. And to explain that, let me take us back to Egypt. Let me take us back to the Exodus. Let us go back to when Yahweh led his people out of Africa. We all know the story of the ten plagues in the Exodus. Yahweh visited upon Egypt these ten escalating plagues uh, to get Pharaoh to let his people Israel go. They, they did persuade Pharaoh to let Israel go, but there was more going on there than, than just that. You see, the plagues were explicitly demonstrations of Yahweh's power, his victory over the so-called gods of Egypt. And he takes the thing that a god of Egypt is associated with, and he uses it against that god. Let me give you two examples, and maybe that'll help us see what I'm talking about. One of the, one of the uh, uh, plagues, uh, Yahweh took the dust of the earth, right? And he, he created out of the dust of the earth swarms of gnats. 
Now, big deal, right? God created gnats. There's an Egyptian god named Geb who was the god of dust. Who do you have to tick off to become the god of dust? <laughs> but Geb was the god of, of the dust. And when Yahweh took his stuff, his dust, he turned it into gnats and used it against the Egyptians, used it against Geb, right? He's showing his power, his authority in a spiritual realm over this idol. And then you've got this idea of, of God, uh, Yahweh, darkening the sun for three days. The sun uh, was so dark and the darkness was so deep that it could be felt, we're told. In this, Yahweh exhibited his power and authority over Ra, who was the sun god. And Ra, by the way, was the most worshipped and revered god of the Egyptian pantheon. He takes the stuff of Ra and uses it against Ra, showing Ra to be powerless in the face of Yahweh, showing Yahweh to be triumphant and victorious. Now, just as he did in Egypt, so in Judges chapter 4, God takes the stuff of a foreign deity and uses it against them. He unmasked and he defeated the gods of Egypt, and here he unmasks and he defeats Baal. And just like in Egypt, when the weapons of war were the very things the so-called gods controlled here, Yahweh uses the stuff of Baal to defeat the servants of Baal. Baal, you see, was the storm god. He was responsible for the rain. Baal was, in that sense, a fertility god. You prayed to Baal to send rain when you needed it, and you prayed for Baal to Baal for a few weeks of dry when you needed to reap your harvest. Baal, the storm god, rode upon the clouds within the Canaanite mythology. Baal, the storm god, threw down thunderbolts. And what did Yahweh use to rout Sisera? What did he use to defeat 900 chariots of iron? Rain. Clouds. The earth shook. From thunderbolts? We don't know. But the Kishon flooded. We note this because this conflict isn't just physical. It isn't just about Jabin and Syria, the Canaanites, or J Jabin and Sisera, the Canaanites and the Israelites. This conflict is also spiritual. It is about Yahweh defeating the kingdom of darkness represented by the idols. He takes the stuff of Baal and beats Baal with it. Kind of like Alabama going into Ole Miss and destroying. Oh, did I need to bring that up? God is a divine warrior who fights for his people in the physical and spiritual realms, and he wins. And he wins a total victory over the physical and spiritual enemies of his people, Israel, in Judges chapter 4. That's what it tells us about God. Now, you may be asking yourself the question, well, how in the world are we going to talk about Jesus out of this particular passage? I mean, I guess you could draw some kind of connection between the tent, tent peg through, the, through the, the dome of Sisera and the, the nails that go through Jesus' hands, and actually, no, we're not going to go there at all. <laughs> this passage points us to Jesus, because once again, we see the pattern, the unexpected deliverer who delivers, who saves in unexpected ways. One of the major themes that runs through the book of Judges is exactly that. God raises up people that no one would ever expect, and he uses them to do amazing things in his power. In that day and age, we're talking about late Bronze Age, early Iron Age. We're talking about a thousand years or more before Jesus was born. In that day and age, one can't get, get much more unexpected than Ehud, the left-handed Benjamite from Judges chapter 3, except for going to a woman like Deborah or Jael. 
In that day and age, ladies were to be in the, 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 the tent. They were taking care of the family and the home. They weren't going to be raised up to be deliverers. And yet, God raised up Deborah to be a prophetess, to speak on his behalf. The reason why Barak said, I'll only go to war if you go with me, Deborah, is because Deborah was a prophet, and it was thought that wherever the prophet went, the presence of God went. And so he's, Barak says, I want God's presence. I must have you, the prophetess, come with me. She was the judge. She would sit and render sort of legal decisions. And Jael is ultimately an unexpected deliverer because, one, she is a woman, but also when Sisera fled to Jael's tent, he was not choosing a random stranger. The narrative in chapter 4, verse 17, makes it absolutely clear that Jael's husband, Heber, was an ally of Jabin and thus an ally of Sisera. And so Sisera went to a woman's home that he knew, expecting hospitality and protection, and instead he got the pointy end of a tent stake. Sisera sought refuge in the home of an ally, expecting protection, and instead Jael delivered the people of Israel in an unexpected way. A warlord like Sisera would have perhaps considered being killed in battle at the hands of a mighty warrior at the receiving end of a sword or a spear to be an honorable death. And yet he was killed, hiding, rolled up in a carpet, having fallen asleep by what was in that day and age a woman's home appliance. In that day and age, it was the woman who drove the tent pegs to raise the tent. It was the woman who took control of the tent. It was the woman who protected the tent. And here, his brains were bashed out in these unexpected means of deliverance. This points us to Jesus, folks. Because who would have ever thought that God's great deliverer would be born under scandalous circumstances? Who would have ever thought that the great deliverer would have been a carpenter from Nazareth, a friend of a bunch of nobodies, a nobody himself? And yet that's exactly who Jesus is, the unexpected great deliverer. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Why would we want this guy? He's a nobody. And yet he is God's chosen, unexpected agent of deliverance. And who would have ever thought that Yahweh, the triune divine warrior, would conquer humanity's greatest enemies, sin and death, hell and the devil, not through destroying them upon the battlefield, not through military power or might, but through death. The death, the very death of that great deliverer that he had sent. And who would have ever dreamed of resurrection? Jesus is the great unexpected deliverer who delivers in really unexpected means. And something more regarding Jesus. As we see in the book of Judges, God often uses humanity to work out, to enflesh his redemptive work. Equipping humanity in his power, men and women like Deborah and Barak and Jael accomplish his purposes. God enters into creation and in Jesus... God himself was enfleshed as the eternal Son of God it is made incarnate by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And Jesus does that which is necessary for the already defeat of the spiritual enemies of his people, sin and death and hell and the devil. We can't miss this either. Jesus takes up the cross. The cross was a, a means of Roman execution and intimidation. 
The cross was an expression of Roman dominance and of Roman power and authority. Jesus takes the stuff of Rome and he defeats it on his back. And this is spiritual conflict that will have and does have consequences in the physical. As death, Jesus' death leads to resurrection. Jesus' resurrection leads to ascension. And Jesus' ascension leads to Jesus' return. It's worth quoting from Revelation chapter 19 at this point. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. We live now in the kingdom of God under the victorious King Jesus. And a time is coming when Jesus, the victorious King, will return and physically establish his kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. And Jesus, along with his people, will sit down to feast, a victory feast, a wedding feast of the Lamb. As he has won total victory over his enemies, spiritual and physical. God is the divine warrior, Jesus the unexpected deliverer. What does this tell us about us? What does this say about humanity? This passage reveals uh, two points about humanity, I think, which also serve as our application this morning. First, we need to recognize that humanity is absolutely dependent upon God for victory. We are on the receiving end of God's work so first here is the gospel. Humanity cannot win the battle humanity needs to win over its enemies. We just sang this morning, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same and he must win the battle. Humanity is absolutely dependent upon God for victory over our deepest and darkest enemies, sin, death, hell, and the devil. Like Israel in Judges chapter 4, we are outnumbered and we are outgunned. Like Israel in Judges chapter 4, we need God to fight on our behalf, which is exactly that which God has done and is doing and will do in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, God has won the battle for all who would believe, and this is truly good news. If you have not responded to Jesus, if you've not trusted him to be Lord and Savior, please allow me the honor of stating it plainly. You cannot rescue yourself. You are a battleground in which light and dark, God and the devil are fighting. And you can do nothing to defeat the sin that is within you and that oppresses you. But that which is necessary for victory has been done in Jesus. And you can receive it as a free gift from God through trust in Him. And so I ask you, where are you? And if you've already believed in Jesus Christ, please allow me the honor of stating it plainly. You too need the gospel. I need the gospel. Those of us who already believe in Jesus need the gospel for at least three reasons. I want to focus only on one, and that is transformation. 
We need the gospel to be transformed into that which God wants for us, the very image of Christ. The gospel is for our justification, and the gospel is for our sanctification, our transformation. And so it is that believers in Jesus must continue to be gospeled for growth. The gospel changes the way in which we live. The gospel changes the way in which we see the world. The gospel changes the way we see others within the world. And the gospel changes the way we understand and respond to God's call upon us to be equipped and commissioned into God's battle. And that's the second thing that we see from this particular passage. Rescued by God through Jesus, believers in Jesus are then called and commissioned to fight as soldiers of light against the darkness against the enemies of God and humanity. Called and commissioned to take up arms, so to speak, like Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Called and commissioned to participate with God while God alone does what God alone can do. To be those men and women, to be men and women of the gospel, we need to continually be gospel so that we can share the gospel. And so our hospitality is gospel hospitality. Our witness is gospel witness. Our critique of the culture is a gospel critique. Our understanding of the darkness is a gospel understanding. To be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries, that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom requires a church that is gospeled continuously being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing that we are dependent upon God for victory over our spiritual enemies and in times to come over our physical enemies. Just like Barak, we need God to fight for us, to fight on our behalf, to defeat and destroy our enemies that we might have peace. We need Jesus to fight for us. This means we need Jesus and his victory upon the cross in the resurrection and ascension And in this time between Jesus' ascension and his return, we need Jesus to fight for us and to defeat our enemies of sin, death, hell, and the devil. This means we need the gift of the Holy Spirit. We recognize that a time is coming in which Jesus will come again. And the rider on the white horse will come to fully and finally establish his kingdom And then the divine warrior will bring to bear the full and final defeat of all his enemies, all our enemies. And in the in-between, as we respond with obedience to his call to share his battle, to share his victory, what wonderful words for us to hear from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God is the divine warrior who fights for his people in physical and spiritual realms. He breaks into creation. Jesus is the unexpected deliverer who fights for his people in unexpected ways and whose victory has spiritual and physical benefits. And humanity is dependent upon God for victory. And in that victory, humanity is called and commissioned to carry on the fight against darkness. And all these things to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Amen. Most merciful and gracious God, we praise you. Lord, thank you. You love us. Thank you. You fight on our behalf. Thank you 
that in Jesus all that is necessary for us to have victory over sin, death, hell, and the devil has been done and is accomplished. Be at work in us, creating us clean hearts, continue the work of transformation. And Lord, through us, we pray that you would continue to press back the forces of darkness in our neighborhoods, in the city of Destin, in Fort Walton Beach, and beyond. Use us as soldiers, as agents of the light, carrying the gospel forth. That you will do exactly what you have said you will do. What you alone can do. Come as we adore you with praise. Come and be worshipped. Holy Spirit, won't you come? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We'll stand together and respond to God's word through adoration and praise.